welcome to the edition podcast once again. I'm very excited this week because we've got some breaking news. Uh, as I was about to hit record with my wonderful guest this week, we learned of a rather significant sale, Axios, which people will know for its focus on newsletters and bullet points, um, has been sold to Cox Enterprises for in a deal that estimates the company at about 525 million of your US dollars, which is not bad for a startup that's only been going since 2016. Uh, to join me, I couldn't have a better guess, really. It's it's Mark Sternberg. How are you, Mark? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me here. No, it's an absolute pleasure. Mark is, of course, a senior media reporter over on Adweek. He's been on before, and we managed to avoid discussing third-party cookies last time. Unfortunately, even the breaking news is not going to spare us this time. But as with the transition away from third-party cookies, we're going to push it down the road a bit because we want to talk about this Axios deal. So as I said, $525 million in cash. Uh, Cox Enterprises. Now, for people in the UK who might not know, first of all, the story of Politico, uh, sorry, of Axios, which was from the guys, some of the guys that started Politico. What's their background? What's the story of Axios, Mark? Yeah, so the the general overview is around 2016 or 2017, three of the people who were instrumental in co-founding Politico split to launch Axios. And my understanding of that split is that it was a little bit acrimonious. Um, And so the three people who then took to Axios basically had this philosophy of, we think that people love bite-sized information uh, that cuts out fluff and just delivers facts and they took the sort of newsletter-based model that Politico had really grown on the back of and combined those two concepts with obviously more of a general interest or general business news interest kind of approach um, and have been able to grow it into a massive empire stable, or sorry, a massive newsletter stable over the last several years. Um, And then additionally have launched some really innovative sort of side projects that are growing into standalone things themselves. Obviously, like we've discussed, Axios Local being a big one, mm-hmm. and then Axios HQ, which is intriguingly not part of the deal. Um, but that's so- their technology offering, isn't it? That's the kind of behind the scenes tech stack. That if you wanted to make a publication a bit like Axios, you could work with them and their Axios HQ software and services to make your own product. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a it's a it's a fascinating company and it's definitely gained a lot of momentum really quickly. And it, it kind of speaks to something within the DNA of both political and axios, politico and axios, that in a media landscape that's been really hard to exit for the vices and the BDGs and the voxes of the world. Um, here are two companies that both were able to go out for a billion and half a billion dollars. Uh so clearly something within that brain trust is uh is onto something yeah i mean the brain trust you refer to is mike allen jim van der hey and roy schwartz who were the co-founders of axios and as you say left uh politico in 2016 um yes. and i'll leave you to speculate on how happy or unhappy a separation that was um but it's you know in 2020 it started getting into local news which was obviously a really interesting time to make a play like that because actually people really needed local news a lot as 2020 developed and they were there putting money into it. And uh, the thing I find so interesting about Axios actually is how many 
are the startups that we now talk about in lauded terms have copied a lot of what they do. So, okay, we can joke about the, the famous bullet points at a different point, but this idea of having a stable of high-profile newsletter writers all under one banner is really is Puck, isn't it, really, before Puck was Puck? Um, you know, some of the people that write for Axios, Sarah, Sarah Fisher, who both you and I agree is a must-read on the media. Um, there's uh, Ina Freed, who writes on tech. There's Dan Premark who writes on deals and all sorts of stuff like that. These are, you know, big hitting names. I mean, you know, you could wheel off another three, four, five, six who you probably read as well. Um, that you know, these are serious names of pe- that people want to read and have a direct relationship with. Yeah, I think that they were obviously not the first media company to make newsletters kind of the foundation of their of their distribution network, but they were one of the first to do it on a really broad basis and become in many ways, like you were just saying, and I agree, like some of these newsletters are, (laughs) I'm trying to make this term into a thing, appointment reading, like every Tuesday, Sarah Fisher, if you're in media, that's an agenda setting newsletter. And it's the same case with Dan Premack and and Ina Freed, to your point. Um, They did a really good job of blending this, like the distribution network that you know, everybody knows it can count on reaching you and then combine that with big names and allowing them to grow their audiences over a multitude of years. So it really double dips on this intimacy that newsletters afford, where you feel like you have a relationship with this reporter. Um, And then behind that is like this really powerful engine of we have, I don't know how many newsletters it is, probably more than 20 at least. I mean, Um, I seem to get half a dozen in my inbox each week at least. Yeah, so... It's it's a really smart system, and I appreciate that they haven't just rested on their laurels, that they've taken a lot of the money and success and momentum that they've gotten from it and begun investing it in these side projects as a way of distributing risk and uh, you know diversifying their revenue. They even launched, we haven't mentioned, um, what, three or four months ago, they launched the Axios Pro newsletters yeah. for five, or I guess you could say they expanded some of their exclusive offerings. I know now they have a media newsletter for $599 a year. I think they have some similar ones. So that is some significant corporate subscription, um, you know, a corporate subscription attempt there. So definitely innovative, definitely nimble and light on its feet. And um, it appears to have worked out for them. Do you know how many people, I mean, I'm sort of catching you on the hoof here. You might not know the answers. Do you know how many people are actually on the staff across the border, Axios? Yeah, I'm totally pulling this number out of like the dark recesses of my brain that Perfect. might be completely Love inaccurate. It. But I feel like it's something like 200 to 250 or 200 to 300, something in that range. Right. So let, let's reiterate. This was a company that started in 2016 saw out a pandemic and actually I remember listening to loads of podcasts and media commentary that they were often held during uh, the the pandemic as like a company that was really not just surviving but thriving um, and now have exited as we get to summer 2022 it's it's a pretty remarkable story and is yeah you know yeah these guys have done it you know set up two things that people wanted for a combined sum of one and a half billion dollars yeah. Well, and, and we'll talk about it a little bit later when we get to the Google cookies discussion, but can't be overlooked here that this is another 
sort of endorsement of the newsletter model in terms of for Axios, not subscriptions, although they do have this pro model, but for advertising. They've mm. they've really built this huge thing by saying all the newsletters are free. Everything is free at a time when a lot of the media industry said reader revenue, subscriptions and paywalls. That's the future. Axios very deliberately built an industry, built a business that went the complete opposite way and said, what if we keep everything open? We know when people sign up for newsletters that they are high intent readers, that they probably have some business affinity or affiliation with this particular topic. And they've really been able to say that combined with, as we've talked about, you know, data and, and privacy regulations changing, making it harder to, you know, serve targeted ads. Uh, this is another instance in which newsletters offer a really natural way of doing that. And, and here's Axios uh, sort of proving as a case study that, that that's an effective way of advertising in a in a post cookie landscape. Yes, which we will definitely now do need to come on to because it was the main thing we wanted to discuss when I, I dragged you back on the show. But um, this was breaking news and we were both quite intrigued by it. So I thought we'd turn on the mics and just discuss it out loud. But um, obviously, if you're a fan of newsletters and Axios newsletters. I have less bullet points in mine, but please do subscribe to uh, theedition.substack.com. There's free, there's uh, a yearly uh, annual tier as well. And I've even launched a founding tier, which you get a signed copy of my book, Not Buying It, which uh, is about fake news and post-truth and all those things. It was written, came out kind of 2019 and i think i could probably do a new edition given everything else that's gone on in those few years since it came out but yes go to theedition.substack.com and that helps keep this show on the road so i really appreciate people who have done that but yes cookies mark we're not talking about the thing you might settle down to with a cup of tea or a glass of milk we're talking about those lovely things that follow you around the internet now when you were last on the show we were like Let's not talk about cookies. It's going to happen. They're being faded out. Blah, blah, blah. People are just sorting themselves out. Yet last week, Google decided, no, they were going to push it back, the phase out of third-party cookies, until 2024, which is a rather, you know, this is not the first delay. We've had other delays to this process. But this is yet, you know, it's, a, it's quite a significant thing to, like, have got multiple industries on tenderhooks about this and then gone ah leave it a few months it's okay um what are the people you speak to loads of people across media and advertising what was the initial reaction i think this is certainly a case of like fool me once shame on you fool me twice you know kind of at this point a lot of marketers whether or not google is delaying cookies again at this point nobody's surprised um, and people aren't as impacted as they were, I would say. I mean, that's sort of the general consensus. We've we've discussed this a little bit. If you're a smart marketer, if you're a smart publisher, you see what the future holds, whether it's 2023 or 2024. And it doesn't really behoove you in any form or fashion to wait until then to figure out your solution. So I don't think that this is going to have a market slowdown on publishers and marketers alike moving toward a post-cookie universe. Um, it does have a lot of interesting implications for Google as a business, mm -hmm. for the advertising industry. There are some interesting hypotheses as to why they might have kicked the can down the road a little bit further. But I think uh, internally, most of the most of the, the the sort of envelope pushing innovative 
companies within the the media ecosystem are going to continue their work to move toward a cookie-less environment nonetheless. Uh, go on then, hypothesize. What what are some of the reasons we think this del- this delay has happened again? Yeah, so, okay, I would say a few reasons. This is kind of like the chatter amongst the media ecosystem. So none of these have really been confirmed by Google. Um, I should say that they're more speculation, but the first no, this is... this is fine. That... I'm very happy for the edition podcast to be the home of wild media speculation. Please continue. <laughs> well, so here we go. This is sourced from a number of reputable places, but everyone's um, a little bit putting their finger in the wind. Um, one is that Google's specific solution for when it, when cookies disappear, how advertisers can continue to use Chrome uh, is now called Topics. It's it, it's introduced a Topics API as part of its larger uh, privacy sandbox initiative. And just in the last few weeks, some coverage has surfaced that said, A, there's not really a lot of data about how effective Topics is. Um, and B, uh, we don't really like this system that much in many ways. It might not really divest Google's been criticized because it has hegemony over the digital advertising industry. Mm -hmm. And it sort of unveiled some of these privacy-centric regulations or privacy-centric updates as a way of saying, we want to create a better internet. But a lot of critics have said, this isn't really going to substantially change anything. If anything, it's going to put more power in the hands of Google because of the way that topics is going to work. So they're Uh, not really... And you explain that, you know, for listeners who are not as embedded in this as you explained, just topics just briefly. Yeah, so topics is essentially what third-party cookies do is they track you as you move yeah. from website to website, from app to website, et cetera. And so when those disappear, it's going to be hard to determine. It, it's the reason the why two- you search for something on, say, Amazon and an advert for it then follows you around the internet. Exactly. And so Google's saying, we're going to do away with that. And in response, we're going to create something called Topics API, which essentially when somebody visits a website using both like first-party cookies, contextual tools, a bunch of other factors, it's going to make a determination about what kind of reader you are. And it's going to put you into a category based on essentially a topic. And it's not going to identify you on a one-to-one basis. It's going to put you into part of a larger cohort based on that topic, and it's going to serve you ads accordingly. So it's a little bit like a sophisticated contextual ad. But the problem is, is that it really centers this tracking technology in the browser. So it it does, in a way, what cookies used to do, but now it in-houses that function. Rather than cookies being set up by a third party, it's now going to allow Google to perform a similar version of that tracking, albeit a a much more privacy compliant one. Um, But it's really just going to sort of cut out the middleman and say, hey, what cookies we're doing, now we're going to effectively be the only people who can do that. Hence hence the idea that Google is actually just doubling down on its control of digital advertising. Yeah. And we've seen this like with Apple too, where it's just like- As you were describing it, that's exactly what I was thinking of. And I'm sure we see with Amazon, we see with Microsoft, like all these companies say that they're doing something for one reason, but then there's like a dozen sort of vestigial effect, like secondary reasons why they're doing it, right? So Google's like, this is more privacy compliant. Oh, also it gives us even more control over the digital advertising industry. I didn't know that, you know, kind of thing. Like, so it's, it's it's a good reminder to like, 
not to distrust tech companies, but to assume that there's always like a sub layer or a subtext to w any strategy that they're announcing or rolling. Yeah. So. I mean, with Apple, it was, oh yeah, we love, and I think we, actually when it comes to Apple, their desire to offer users privacy is genuine. I think mm -hmm. people at the top of Apple do actually legitimately care about user privacy. But of course, the benefit is that it keeps you with, you know, you're more encouraged to stay within the Apple ecosystem. It's easier to stay within the Apple ecosystem, I would say. It also makes life harder. And this is, I think, is the most significant. It, they basically took out Facebook's advertising model in one fell swoop with the changes mm -hmm. they made too. And, uh, you know, we've given the relationship between Apple and Facebook. I suspect Apple were not too disappointed that that was one of the knock-on effects of their changes, that, that it made it harder for people to, you know, get at, buy and get track people on Facebook and use Facebook tools uh, for, you know, targeted ads and so forth. Um, what is, do you think, actually, while we're talking about Meta and Facebook, what do you think the fallout of this Google decision is for them? Good question. Um, I don't know that it will have a massive effect on them because Facebook and Meta have been a walled garden um, and that it was really affected. My understanding is that what really handicapped the Facebook advertising model was Apple's new privacy regulations, right. specifically the app tracking transparency. Uh, and app. Mark Zuckerberg said this on like, uh, you know, analyst calls when they announced results. Yeah. So I can't imagine that the deprecation of cookies was going to help Facebook's business, but I don't think that it was as reliant on it uh, in the exact same way that, well, marketers are currently reliant on it because cookies help you track across the open web. And Facebook was sort of the first and in many ways is still the preeminent walled garden where like what goes on on Facebook is their domain. Um, and of course, it did help that they could track you as you move from app to app or app to website. Um, but cookies didn't play as big of a role for Facebook as they might for some of these open web publishers. Yeah, basically, Facebook wanted you to stay in Facebook, buy ads on Facebook to sell stuff to your friends on Facebook and their friends. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and you, at the top of this, rightly pointed out that kind of companies have already gone all oh, right third party cookies are going let's sort out some our technology to make sure we can manage mitigate this and sell ads to people and deal directly with readers and so on and actually some publishers i think are probably quite pleased to have been given this kind of push to actually get things in-house um mm -hmm. you wrote about a really interesting example and i don't want to dive too far in the tech but it was interesting uh, because it involved Reach, which is a UK publisher. Um, users might, uh, listeners might not know, but it's the company behind the likes of The Mirror, uh, the Manchester Evening News. There's a whole load of football uh, websites that it it's under the Reach banner. And actually, there's a variety of local sites, not just the MEN. So they're a very significant publisher in the UK. And they've obviously been preparing for this, as they should, as a responsible company. And They've started a technology thing with a partnership called something called LiveRamp, you wrote about, an authenticated traffic solution, which is not to do with my, your car, apparently, but to do with web traffic. So just briefly, what is a, a publisher the size and significance of reach? How are they responding to this 
presumably this was already happening before last week when Google pushed things back. They were already making these plans. Mm. Yeah, so publishers have a number of different problems that they have to solve when it comes to preparing for the deprecation of third-party cookies. There's different audiences that visit your website. There's audiences that come and they log in and they love you. Maybe they're even subscribed and you can create a big profile on them based on their user behavior, based on the login. These are very valuable to advertisers, but it's a very small percentage of the traffic that a publisher generally gets. Most people say at most 10% of your traffic is going to be registered logged in users, right? But that's a very valuable tranche of users. And so what Reach has done with this latest partnership is it's working with a company called LiveRamp specifically to monetize that cohort of people who are logged in users. Um, and it's doing this by working with LiveRamp, which has its own identity solution called ATS, which essentially works by creating something that's like a cookie, but not a cookie that it's called it's 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 called the ramp ID. Um, and it functions in a similar way as a cookie, though there are privacy encryption steps that theoretically protect user identity, um, unlike a cookie. So this is just one instance of how that's how a publisher can monetize its most valuable audience, the people who log in who who they are familiar with. On the other hand, there's probably 90% of the rest of your audience that's never going to log in, right? So then you're collecting maybe first-party data on them based on like first-party cookies that you drop, or potentially they're visiting in Chrome and you can still track them with a third-party cookie, or they're visiting on Safari and it's completely cookie-less. Yeah. So publishers are having to devise solutions for all these different kinds of audience situations. Um, and so anyone you speak with will say, it's not a one size solves all kind of situation. Sure. You're going to have your solution for your cookie list visitors, for your logged in visitors, mm -hmm. for your first party visitors. And these involve alternate IDs, um, logins, um, contextual advertising, et cetera. So smart publishers are, are experimenting a lot and immediately because they want to figure out what works best by the time that, you know, someone turns the lights out finally on cookies. Um, but so reach is just a good finally example. eventually some point in 2024 maybe <laughs> yeah well and it's interesting because we talk about third-party cookies as deprecating and we talk about it as if this is going to be some apocalyptic moment for the media industry but study after study really confirms that intelligent advertising served using first-party information is more effective than ads served using third-party cookies uh, uh, and so it's not really an issue of the ads I, are going to be worse. Yeah, I what mean, I can completely believe this, I have to say. Because, you know, on this podcast, sometimes we have ads and ad reads, and they're designed to be things we think my listeners will like, and that's great. And, you know, really appreciate those companies that want to engage with my listeners, and that, that's fantastic. And when I turn on TV shows or read a publication, and it's stuff that's relevant to the thing I'm reading or watching... I don't particularly object to the advertising on it. Mm -hmm. or But I, you know, that thing of being tracked around the web by a product that you looked at once gets pretty annoying. That thing of, you know, just a random ad, many of which are not particularly, uh, you wouldn't want someone to walk in while it's on your screen sometimes. <laughs> you know, there's all, you know, there's not, can often not be a lot of quality control in ad, those online ads. 
mm-hmm. uh, never mind the horror of pop-ups and all those kind of things, that actually the fact that publishers are having to really think about this stuff and make it more and more relevant for lead uh, readers, listeners, viewers, surely is a good thing for both the people trying to sell stuff and the people they're trying to sell stuff to. Yeah, absolutely. I think across the board, people understand that a future where first party information serves as the foundation for ads is going to create a better experience for everybody. But there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to get built between now and then. And that's essentially where the industry is right now. I don't think it existed. The capability probably didn't exist several years ago. Um, But now it does. And publishers and marketers are building out that infrastructure. And I think in the future, we're going to have a healthier, more privacy compliant ecosystem that doesn't just say, this person looked at a pair of shoes two days ago, let's show them that ad again. It says, what other articles has this person read? What other kinds of products have they looked at? What is the nature of this article that they landed on currently? Are they in a shopping mindset? Are they in a research mindset? Are they reading about sports and they don't want to be served an ad about shoes that they looked at? So it's just becoming more sophisticated across the board. There's just a lot of growing pains between we rely on cookies exclusively to we look at a holistic picture of a user's internet behavior, or at least on-site internet consumption, um, and then serve them an ad or even a product recommendation, like, I'm sorry, not a product recommendation, uh, an article recommendation. I was just speaking with the people from Red Ventures the other day, mm-hmm. who have like one of the most sophisticated advertising suites that I know of. And they were, they've just hired Um, a really intelligent chief data officer whose whole remit is to kind of make their already really intelligent advertising even more holistic and uh, make be able to sort of be empowered to, to say this person instead of serving them an ad we might serve them an extra article in this situation or we might even serve them a recommendation for a service or a course um so taking further into account Sorry, now I'm I'm getting on my pedestal, but no, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. Like the the future is bright, um, and it's more creative than it is with. But do you think stuff. it's bright for users? You know, I'm listening to you to do describe talk about first party data and you know logged in using all those things, and I'm kind of like, well, that's a lot of different people that have my data. There's a lot of points mm. of failure. True. That is kind of the issue, right? Like one of the fundamental tensions is privacy, privacy and scale. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know, right? Like it, 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 there's a real benefit to having a one-on-one trusting relationship with a publisher and signing in and, and giving them consent to like serve you better articles based on your reading history. That's something I think that everybody wants, right? But there, there's so many sort of nefarious dark patterns that can get built into that. One of which is like these publishers will sign data sharing agreements with companies that package that data up and are allowed to use it in different ways. So you get into the situation where, oh yes, I've just consented to sharing my data with this publisher, but it turns out this publisher is owned by this company. And now I've shared my data with this entire company when that's like not what I intended to do in the first yeah. place. So you, but they do that because marketers are over here saying, Hey, I'm not going to make an ad buy. If all you do is attract 500,000 people a month, you have to be giving me a hundred million or I'm not opening my pocketbook. Yeah. So another tension that we have yet and, to fully solve. And with all, all the issues that came with the kind of hegemony of Google and Facebook, you know, the fact that they were really the 
huge power players in digital advertising, uh, particularly in the case of Google, um, there was a lot of onus on Google to not screw that up. The, the consequences of Google having a massive data breach were so significant that they couldn't basically could not allow it to happen, right? I mean, we know there were issues with Facebook and data breaches that have sort of come out of uh, at later points. Um, but, you know, Google, for all the things we want to criticise it about, for, you know, tracking us and following us around the web and so on, it was interested in that data for itself, right? It wasn't particularly interested in, it didn't want other people to have access to its data apart from through its transactions. Um, it was very protective of its data in a way. And so when you have these little, you know, these various players now who may or may not have the resources of Google and Alphabet at a parent level to make sure your data is safe and looked after properly and have that expertise, like that, there are places, ways this could go wrong for publishers. Yes. And like most things in this ecosystem, the solutions that are built are built to solve the problems of the biggest richest most sure. powerful players in the space right and so like that's a constant problem what are you to do if you're a small publisher and maybe you don't have like a whole newsletter set up maybe you're just publishing articles on the web like you're a food blogger or something like that how are you being represented at the round table where these discussions are being made or being well, had tldr you're not yeah <laughs> so there are solutions out there like there's some companies that we write about a lot one's called cafe media where they basically get a bunch of small publishers together into a consortium and hear their needs and desires and then use the force that they have as a group of publishers to kind of come to the bargaining table. So that's a way that some of these smaller publishers can get leverage. Um, but again, it's coming down to scale, isn't it, ultimately? It's exactly like everything else in America, where it's like the people with the most money make the decisions. Ugh. So you either, <laughs> you either figure out a way to scale up and get a seat at the table, or you're probably going to get the short stick. And that mm. sucks. But that is what happens when the internet is capitalist. Well, before Mark starts reading us the whole Communist Manifesto, we'll uh, say thank you very much. It's going to be, this is a, such an intriguing space to watch because it, even when you don't think this impacts you because you're not a publisher or Google, it really, really does. And, you know, it affects how we all use the internet in lots of different ways. So I'm always pleased to dive back into this topic and I'm really pleased you were here to join me, Mark. Um, thank you so much. Where can people keep up with you and your work? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Mark Stenberg three, or you can find my work at Adweek uh, under the media vertical. Fantastic. And we will link to that in the show notes as well. I'm at Charlotte A. Henry on Twitter. Uh, if you're listening to the show, you clearly know how to listen to a podcast, but uh, you can listen to it anywhere in your any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for the edition or the edition with my name. If you're listening to it on Substack, as I say, find it in your favorite podcast app and you can have it there with all the other shows you listen to. Uh, please do consider taking out either a free or paid for subscription. It's all really appreciated and helps keep the show going. And I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.